need someone to be around you. Someone to sit down and pour you short chew. But sometimes saying goodbye to familiar folks is the only way. Sometimes that's when you finally find your space. Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, recording from the booze closet here in Tokyo. And with me, as always, in Fukuoka, Japan, is my co host, Stephen Lyman. We're both certified shochu and awamori professionals, published authors, and we're pretty relentless in our pursuit of new and interesting information about Japanese distilling traditions. We've been exploring the wonderful world of Japanese spirits for a combined three decades. And we're very excited to share them with you through this podcast. Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Christopher.、Uh, reflecting on our previous episode on Koji, I realized that something we had struggled with for a long time is understanding how and when shochu production moved from yellow Koji to black Koji.、Mm-hmm. Clearly, black Koji was being used in mainland Japan by the time Professor Koachi discovered that white Koji mutation. In his laboratory in 1918, but how much earlier? And it turns out, due to a recent invitation to Southern Kagoshima, we now know. Yeah, we were invited by the head of what is known as the, the Shoju Joshikai,、um, Ms. Nobuko Kurose. And she invited us down to the far southwestern tip of Kagoshima, the, the Satsuma Hanto side of Kagoshima Prefecture. To visit a very sacred part of shochu history. And that happens to reside、uh, in Kasasa Village, which is in Minami Satsuma in Kagoshima Prefecture. And it's known as the Kurose Toji Guild. And this guild has a museum which preserves all of that history of this very important part of shochu culture. And that Museum is attached to an active shochu distillery, which is known as Toji no Sato Kasasa. And translated, that would be, I guess, Toji's Village of Kasasa. And this place has carefully documented and preserved much of the guild's history from its founding all the way to pretty much present day. That's right. And the guild was founded actually by three men.、Uh, There was Hajime Katahira, who came from a sake making background. And then two members, two members of the Kurose family, Minosuke Kurose and Tsunekichi Kurose,、uh, who had both actually been trained in awamori making.、Uh, the guild was established in Kasasa village. And this trio revolutionized shochu making throughout Kyushu from this tiny village on the southwest coast of Kagoshima. The guild was arguably the most powerful Toji guild in Kyushu for most of the 20th century. They were incredibly influential in developing what the modern shochu industry has become. Right.、Uh, and really, the, the impetus for the guild was the modernization of Japan. As we've mentioned previously, in 1884, 1885, distillers were forced to become companies. You couldn't home distill anymore, it became illegal.、Uh, but that's what shochu was. For much of its history prior to the late 1800s. But apparently, the real shift came when the shochu production started to be taxed, and that was in 1898. And when that happened, illicit stills started popping up throughout the countryside high up in the mountains.
Yeah, as you would expect. And uh, because everybody had been home distilling, it's not like they're going to suddenly stop making booze, right? But it did become a business all of a sudden. And there were there was new money probably that was injected into some of these firms, some of these young corporations. There was a, probably a lot of um, merging of different this home traditions. Maybe there were uh, more localized units of production in in various communities across southern Japan. But it was absolutely a time when it wasn't like you could just dial up Wikipedia and figure out how to make shochu or anything. I mean, it wasn't like when I started homebrewing as a teenager, I had books, right? I could buy Charlie Papazian books, but that didn't exist necessarily, or at least not freely. There was no manual. So they needed expertise. And so what happened was this group of people who had some knowledge about black koji use, awamori production, sake making, they started to, they, I guess they must have seen an opportunity and they started to basically rent themselves out as the professionals, as the specialists, as the artisans who could help your business to create a reliably saleable product. Um, and so this, this small community, I believe it was small, it is certainly very small today, uh, started to be basically the headquarters for where all of this expertise was located, or at least one of the headquarters. And in 1902, the Kurose Toji Guild was founded and the men of Kasasa village, who essentially became Toji after a time, they were trained within the guild and they were sent out in teams across Kyushu and, and sometimes even further than that at, to work at different distilleries all over the place. Now, these groups of guys were usually the Toji, the master brewer distiller, plus a couple, maybe a few experienced kurabito or distillery hands. And then one or two new guys, one or two really young people who were just getting started, just getting their feet wet. And they'd spend the whole brewing and distilling season at whatever distillery they were sent out to. And then they'd return to Kasasa in the spring. That's right. And at, at the peak, the guild actually had over 400 members. Uh, and everyone lived in that village. They would farm in the spring and the summer, and then they'd go off to work throughout Kyushu and beyond to make shochu in the fall and winter. And the chief Toji was basically a village chieftain of sorts. And he'd decide which Toji would go to which distillery each season. And it was really hierarchical. And the boys of the village would join the guild as soon as they had finished their mandatory education. And then the training to be a Toji took a minimum of eight years as an apprentice. And it was really, really hard work. Yeah, it must have been absolutely grueling. And eight years, yeah, eight years. Wow. Um, eight years as an apprentice. And you're living and you're, you're working alongside these other people who definitely know their stuff. But it wasn't like the master Toji would just tell you his secrets. It wasn't just, oh, you're, you're underneath me, so I'm going to hand these things down to you. It wasn't that simple. In, in many cases, it was really, you were learning the basic tasks of shochu making and the apprentices who really did need to learn this stuff and, and depended on the senior members of the group to, to 
show them by doing, but the apprentices would simply learn the secrets by observing the master at work. And as far as we can tell, there wasn't really any real sharing of information between the individual toji in Kasasa. I mean, everyone kind of kept their own secrets and their own techniques to themselves. Yeah, that's right. And that's just such a classically Japanese process, I think. Japanese conversation is often talking around things, right? It's 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 very rarely direct. And and this is just, a, I think, a classic example of that where, yes, you're an apprentice, you're coming to work for us, we're going to pay you a salary, you know, you're going to go to work where we tell you, but we're not actually going to teach you anything directly. You're going to have to figure it out. And if you think about it, in each environment they might be sent, it would require a different brewing process. So you can't really teach a paint by numbers uh, instruction. The fermentation time and optimal temperatures might vary for a rice shochu being made in Hitoyoshi, where it's really, really cold in the winter up in Kumamoto. Sure. Uh, and there's wide temperature variations even throughout the day. It might be pretty warm in the in the daytime when the sun's out and then it gets frigid cold at night. And when you compare making that to making shochu, let's say sweet potato shochu being made on the coast of Miyazaki, right? You're in a more semi-tropical environment. It's warmer. You got the, the sea breezes and that sort of thing. And it's really going to change how, how you go through the process when you're working with these living organisms that we discussed in our last episode. So these men would work out their best processes for where they were assigned. And when they were reassigned, they'd have to, tweak their methods to optimize results in a new environment. Yeah. So it, it, I guess in that sense, it wasn't something you could just teach. Like, this is how you do it. Yeah. Right. Well, there, as for, from what we heard anyway, when we went to Kasasa, we heard that there may have been one way in which there was some sharing. I don't know how, how much sharing went on, but uh, we heard that at the end of every brewing season, when everybody finally had made it back to Kasasa, they would just have a big party. Uh, kind of a, mm -hmm. a homecoming party. And also, I think it, it sounds like it was also sort of a cherry blossom viewing party, which indicates that it was probably sometime in, in late February or March when everyone was back. And um, each, you know, each team, each, I guess, group would bring some of the shochu that they had made. And they'd be able, you know, they'd pass it around and people would, I'm sure they, they talked a lot about it and shared stories from the previous brewing season. It must have been an absolute hoot. Uh, and I imagine that some little secrets were, you know, made their way out of people's mouths or, or about techniques or, or this, that, and the other thing, especially when alcohol gets involved, you know how these things go. But, sure, sure. Um, you know, as far as we were told anyway, there really wasn't a whole lot of clear sharing. And I don't know that anybody was writing down their techniques necessarily. I mean, I have, I don't think we saw in the museum any, we, uh, I take that back. We did see a couple of sort of manuals with notes and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. So there, there was some note taking happening, but I don't know if it was a pre prescribed practice necessarily. I don't know if everyone was urged to do that, but and I don't know if it was allowed in some cases. I mean, maybe some of the toji wouldn't have liked it if their underlings were taking detailed notes. Um, but it was it was really, I think your point that you just made, that it was every single location probably necessitated a different approach. And therefore, you couldn't really take a, a one-size-fits-all uh, 
approach to these things. That's right. Yeah, we did see a couple of manuals and they were handwritten notes about production. And there, there were, I, I distinctly remember kind of a table of, of temperature and time sort of right. things, yep. you know, so there, yep. there was some documentation happening, but it's nothing like when Taketsudu went to Scotland and wrote down everything about how to make whiskey and then brought it back to Japan. And that became the whiskey making Bible, basically. Right. That never happened at the guild. They never wrote it all down and, and created a, a, a document like best practices or anything like that. Mm. But thinking about that, that party, that, that must have been like such an amazing place to be. Like imagine, mm. I mean, for shochu lovers like you and I, imagine be, having been a fly on the wall at their drinking party at the end of the season, right? All of these highly competitive master toji showing off what they'd done the, the year before. Some Someone might have made something amazing and everybody was really excited about it. Somebody else had an off year and like everyone gives them a hard time. Mm. Uh, and just imagine being around to witness that kind of environment with all of these master craftsmen. It would have been a hoot, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. And and you have to also imagine that family members would probably have been a little bit more likely to share insider tips with other family members, especially close family members. So I wonder if there wasn't uh, a little more sharing than, than we were led to believe. But yeah, it, re it, really, it really was um, each of these little pods of artisans was kind of evolving in their own way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I guess one of the reasons they didn't share their secrets so readily is that this was actually incredibly lucrative work. Sure. Uh, I did a little further research after our visit. And in 1955, the apprentices at the age of 15 were being paid 14,000 Japanese yen a month, including room and board. Like they didn't have to pay for anything. And that's about $840 in today's US dollars. Not bad um, for a 15 year old. Not at all. And this is at a time when the average income was uh, in Japan was 15,400. So you're making almost the average worker's salary in Japan at the age of 15. And you're living in a rural village without any living expenses. So these, yes. these kids were flush, right? Mm -hmm. And you can imagine the income only went up as you rose through the ranks. So once you became a toji, you didn't want anything to threaten that position. So if you were giving away too much information, a younger guy you're training might end up being more talented than you. Mm. And you might, maybe you get sent to a less lucrative distillery in future years. So I think there might've been a financial incentive for why the sharing wasn't so, so clear. And you can, you can really understand why it was so well comp compensated. I mean, you've worked at a distillery all this time. I mean, this was during the age of handmade koji. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They, they didn't really have the technology that a lot of distilleries employ today. And if you spend any time at all learning about sake, then you know that the toji really does not rest a whole lot during the brewing season because the koji needs to be tended to. It has to be checked. You have to make sure that the temperature and the humidity are perfect for the growth that you're trying to enable. And if you, because we know that if you screw that up, you're obviously not going to have an optimal, optimal fermentation, which could mean that you're going to have a lower yield than you want. It could affect the flavor profile of what you're creating or both. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we talked about that last time, how delicate the balance is between optimizing amylase production and creating enough acidity to protect your fermentation. Right. And you remember at the top of the show that 
we now have that white koji, which was a mutation of black koji, discovered in 1918. So how did the black koji arrive? And that was really a mystery for us until, until recently. Yeah, it, it was. And it, it's, it's actually a pretty simple story. Now, remember, we mentioned that the two Kurose family partners who were the family members who helped start the guild had learned awamori production. Well, it was these guys who helped to make the guild so valuable. I mean, they introduced Black Koji to Kyushu Shochu production as early as 1902 and probably no later than 1912. And I, I Again, since they didn't really share secrets, it's hard to know exactly when they in- introduced Black Koji. But this was, this was a revolutionary uh, phase in shochu production. You know, absolutely. The introduction of Black Koji, I think, made a huge difference in the quality of the fermentations. And you talked about a, about a reliably saleable product, right? That's why these guilds rose up in the first place. And right. Black Koji just made that so much easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but not only did they bring in Black Koji, but uh, prior to the Kurose Toji Guild founding, shochu is generally made in what's known as the Donburi style. Mm-hmm. And that means that the kojified grain and the main ingredients were all added to a single fermentation at the same time and then just left to bu- bubble away. The Kurose Toji Guild, thanks to Hajime Katahira, introduced multi-stage fermentation from the sake industry. And today that's the standard to have separate primary and main fermentations. But at that time, it was revolutionary in shochu. Right. It- yeah, they were borrowing from Awamori, and that was basically a Donburi style, and, and largely is to this day. But to, to further refine and separate the steps to greater control the temperature and the amount of um, enzymatic and, and yeast activity within each step is, was huge. Um, must have, I, I really wish, I really wish we could taste, and I suppose we can, because there is some pretty uh rough stuff that's still made occasionally today but i really wish we could we could taste what was the norm back then for sweet potato shochu in particular um but it's yeah the guild the the kurose toji guild they really did have a vice grip on shochu for a good deal of the 1900s and many of the distilleries where they worked and the brands that they helped develop are household names today, at least in Japan. And literally hundreds of current distilleries owe at least part of their history, a part of their success, part of their development and improvements to the Kurose Toji. And, you know, honestly, there's only a few of these guys left. So what changed? Yeah, well, we had a maybe a once in a lifetime opportunity to interview two of the surviving Kurose Toji uh, guild members on our recent visit. And they actually pointed directly at the development of the Kawachi drum as the reason the guild lost control. The Kawachi drum is an automatic Koji maker, basically. I mean, it still takes Mm -hmm. some, some manual work, but essentially you are able to make a reliable Koji inoculation without the constant attention, the waking up every couple hours to go check on the koji, the adjusting the temperatures in the koji room, all of that's done in this large metal drum. And that made it much easier. And you might have recognized the name Kawachi. It's actually the same professor who discovered white koji. He was able to create this drum as a technological innovation to automate 
the process that had previously been done by these master craftsmen. And so the the need for delicate handmade koji production was gradually replaced by by this technology over the latter half of the 20th century. Yeah. Fortunately, 100% handmade shochu has not disappeared entirely, but there aren't really that many. I mean, there's just a handful of all handmade shochu distilleries left in Japan. But prior to the development of this drum that Professor Kawachi envisioned and, and caused to be developed, they were all handmade shochu distilleries. All of the koji was made by hand. And it was obviously not the best process for mass production. And I, I'm not sure they really were thinking about mass production back then, but it was not an easily scalable activity because koji needs a lot of air, a lot of, uh, you know, basically exposure to air, a lot of surface exposure, surface, surface contact with oxygen in order to really propagate successfully. And therefore you need a lot of horizontal space. Basically you need a lot of flat area for the koji to properly cover the substrate. So the drum just made that you, especially because we're talking about stainless steel and much, much larger pieces of, of equipment that really took the scale and, and punted it into the stratosphere. But before that, you were talking very, very small businesses, very, very small output, very, very small. The ceiling was readily visible. There was probably a ceiling on how much koji they could make in a year and therefore how much product they could sell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you, as I think back through the different all handmade shochu distilleries that I've uh, visited or, or been fortunate enough to work at, mm-hmm. they've, I don't know that anybody works with more than about 300 kilograms of rice in their per day, right? Per day, that's right. And yeah, and that that limits your yield to, I think, if, if, uh, I'm just using the Yamato Zakuda proportions, but that gets you about 800 liters of, of distillate per day if you were to, to use the same proportion of sweet potatoes to rice uh, koji that the Tekkan does. Mm-hmm. And that's not a lot of production. I mean, no, what is it? Uh, Kirishima, now the largest maker, makes hundreds of thousands of liters a day. Right. Right. And we're talking about 800 liters a day as, as the most that any of these small handmade distilleries are making today. Now, you probably could go above that. It's I'm sure that it's possible, but that's... That would it would take a lot of a lot of work. It would be a lot of yeah. lot of hands on deck. You need sure. more people. You need more space. You need yeah. You'd have to build a, a build or expand your koji muro. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah, it would be it'd be a serious process, and you'd be you'd either have to expand the footprint of your distillery, or you'd have to sacrifice space somewhere else. So it's not really a, even an option. I mean, if we think of you already mentioned Yamato Zakura where you work, and then in if we stick around in Kagoshima, we're talking Nakamura is 100% handmade, and then up the hill, Manzen is. And those are, you know, you, it's not like you can make Manzen any bigger. It's it's like in this crack in the mountain with a river That's running right. through it, and it's on the side of the river. They don't have any other space they can use. So, yeah, it's uh, yeah, but and and then outside of outside of Kagoshima, I mean, we've both been to what Fuji Jozo up in Oita. Mm-hmm. What else? Who else comes to yeah. uh, Jufuku. Yeah, Jufuku, Jufuku and Kumamoto. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's just a handful, and there's not many. Yep. 
Well, we would also be remiss if we didn't mention that there was another Poji guild in the Shochu world that was, I guess they were competing with the Kurose Toji guild at, at that time. And they were known as Ata Toji, A-T-A. And they're from the town of Ata, which is actually not very far from Kasasa. It's just a bit to the northwest, I guess, along the coast of southwesterly Kagoshima Prefecture. And unfortunately, that guild, as far as we understand, is completely extinct. Now, there are no remaining Ata Toji. And um, we asked the surviving Kurose Toji guys about this when we talked to them. We asked them, like, so what was the difference between these two different guilds? And they were like, uh, I don't know. Uh, from different towns, I guess. And <laughs> so we're like, okay, thanks, guys. That's yeah. very helpful. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, you do, I have heard Toji, Toji today, who are not part of the guild, refer to Kurose Toji and Ata Toji styles. So mm-hmm. clearly there are some differences, and this is perhaps a topic for a future episode uh, once we can more clearly delineate the differences between the two. That's right. Yeah, we should definitely dig into that when we have an opportunity to talk to some of those guys and, and get a clearer picture because I guess the, I mean, the Kurose Toji didn't even talk to each other. They certainly weren't talking to the Ata Toji to learn, learn no, their they secrets. Were not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, but even the Kurose Toji are almost on the verge of extinction, aren't they? I yeah. Think by their accounting, there's only four guild members that are I don't. I'm, I wasn't sure if it was four that are currently active or four that are currently alive. I, it might um, be a four that are currently alive. <laughs> yeah, it's it's possible. Now there is there's there is an active Toji at the distillery where uh, we visited, where the museum is, and there is a, a next generation Toji being uh, apprenticed. Uh, but that's kind of it. And yeah, you know. But I don't. I don't only think it's the Kawachi drum that's to blame. I mean, that's where they, that's where those two uh, retired Toji pointed. But by the 1970s, the shochu industry had grown to such a size that many distilleries needed to hire Toji full time rather than farming out seasonal work to these kind of itinerant master brewer distillers. Yeah. And so once distilleries started hiring their own Toji and these guys became company men rather than guild members, then the power of the guild uh, diminished you know, to the point where it's now more of a historical relic rather than an integral part of the industry. Yeah. And I think, I I don't think there's any chance that they're going to come back really. Uh, Unless, unless you really do have a, if you have a distillery that's off on some Island and it's kind of a tourist tourism destination and it's not a super, super serious affair, it's a seasonal thing then you might want to bring somebody in on a part-time basis. And that would be a little bit like what these Toji guilds were up to back in the day. But otherwise, yeah. I mean, there's so many distilleries now that where the, the owner is also the Toji. Or, or you know, it doesn't have to be a, a necessarily... It can, it can be just the next generation of the family in many cases. And that's mm-hmm. increasingly common today. It's the, it's the owner's child who is the current Toji. And that's probably going to continue to happen for quite a while, especially at the smaller outfits that we hold so near and dear, just because they're not trying to scale at the same level necessarily. And, but they do want to make sure that they're 
they're, they're running as tight a ship as possible, keeping their overhead down. And I think it's probably a lot cheaper to have someone in the family take care of all of the production rather than farming it out to an artisan. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Uh, having said that, the current toji at uh, Toji no Sato Kasasa is a gentleman by the name of Shouzo Terauchi. And previous to him was Hiroki Kurose. And there is a, as Stephen said, a, a younger guy who is in training who, I'm not sure where he's going to take over. He may take over at that same distillery. But the current Toji, anyway, started as a Kurabito in 1998, and he took over as the Toji in 2014. And he's, he's not, I think he's got a bunch more years in him. He was extremely spry. So mm -hmm. I don't see him moving out of the way anytime soon. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's true, and I, I I've, I've reflected a little bit on what you were saying about how things tend to be run sort of in fam families now rather than mm -hmm. farming it out, and I think you're right on the money with that. And also, the young men who are drawn to this work, the young men who are now becoming toji or uh, taking over their family businesses, there's we're, we're in we're in the era of the owner chef, right? That's it's now like being a craftsman and owning your own business is is uh, is preferred by many people. And so I think it's difficult for somebody to go work for somebody else when they consider themselves a craftsman, right? The, yeah. the, the mindset I think is just shifted, not just in Japan, but around the world. I think and, that's absolutely right. Yeah. I th it, it would take a tremendous shift in, in how shochu is viewed and consumed and produced to, uh, to go, to go back to anything remotely like a guild anymore. I mean, it would almost have to be this revolution of, hundreds of new distilleries opening and all of them wanting to be small craft handmade distilleries, right? Yeah. Because that's what the consumers were demanding. Exactly. And then, kind of like the, yeah, kind of like the, the Japanese whiskey industry right now, where you've got whiskey distilleries popping up all over the place. And a lot of them need mass, they need distillers that people who know how to make whiskey. And guess what? Nobody knows how to make whiskey. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So we that's need right. a whiskey guild. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe that's what, what will come in, in its place. But I mean, I was really struck also by how remote this village was. I mean, I've traveled all over Kagoshima and this felt like just about as far away from civilization as you could get. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. we, we, I don't think we passed a convenience store for what the last 45 minutes to an hour of the drive. And yeah. when there's no convenience store, you are definitely deep, deep, deep in the countryside and in fact, there was a, um, and one of the, one of the basic, uh, utilities of a convenience store is as a restroom, right? It's <laughs> people stop at the convenience store to, to refresh themselves. Uh, and so we passed a firehouse that had a sign saying public toilets, basically like, cause there's no, there's no convenience store around for you to, for you to use the facilities. So just really, really out in the, in the you know, right on the coast, way, way far southwest. And yeah, and it's, it was just kind of a, and, and we, as we were driving into the, into the village, we passed the, I guess the small mountain or large hill where these families all lived uh, and, and farmed uh, back in the day. And it's, it, it, it almost felt like a time capsule in a way, mm. right? You could yeah. almost feel the, the energy of that, you know, the guild, which was flourishing in, you know, the 1920s, 1930s, uh, and was still going strong into the 1950s. Um, but 
yeah, it, it really, it did felt like we stepped back, stepped back in time and then talking to these, these gentlemen, uh, you know, listening to their stories, uh, was, was really like, like I said, once in a lifetime, just something I, I don't know that we're ever going to have a chance to do again. Yeah, it was, we were incredibly fortunate. Couldn't understand much of what they were saying because their, their dialect was pretty thick. You could, oh. you could cut it with a knife. In fact, we have a short recording of their of them talking. And if you speak any Japanese, just go ahead and see how you do with this. Yeah, I understood very, very little of that. And now you, I think you have a little bit better grasp on Kagoshima Ben, Kagoshima dialect than I do. But uh, actually, the the younger uh, apprentice, the, the the man who's in training currently, he he's from the region and he had a hard time understanding what these guys were saying some of the <laughs> he time. He did. Yep. <laughs> I would look at him occasionally across the table. He'd be like, don't look at me, man. <laughs> I, yeah, we had a- I don't know what he said. When you go to Kagoshima and you hear it for the first time, many people who have lived their entire lives in Japan will say, wow, the intonation is totally different. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of regional words that aren't used elsewhere. And, and then you go further into the mountains and it gets just that much more full on. So it's, it's not for the faint of heart, that's for sure. No, no. And these guys must have been what in their eighties, nineties, something like that. And yeah, they were. They're yeah, not, no spring yeah. chickens involved. Yeah, and, and I, I think elderly people worldwide probably tend to smash their words together and and mumble. So that didn't help help either. They they did not care about being understood clearly. That's, right. that's for sure. <laughs> so and they actually, that, that's not they, a big concern for them. They also didn't care what the question was. They were going to talk about what they wanted to. <laughs> Very true. Um, so there were cameras there and we understood that we were you know, being recorded. This was this actually apparently maybe has or will be on TV. Apparently our visit to this uh, to visit and speak with these living legends. But uh, so we, we tried to make it feel like an interview, but much of much of it was just really us asking questions and then them talking about what they wanted to talk about. So that's right. It was, it was yeah. Good. So yeah. Yeah. We kind of would keep coming back to the same question over again, but ask it in, asked in a different way or by a different person to try to get that little nugget that we were looking for. But it was, uh, it was fun. It was a really, really enjoyable. It experience. was. We we're incredibly fortunate. I'm very grateful to, um, Ms. Nobuko Kurose, who is related to the Toji Guild and has become a living historian of the guild's activities and also a huge proponent for spreading shochu far and wide and that includes internationally so very thankful to her for roping us in or inviting us down and making that possible yeah that was that was very generous of her i you know kurose is a relatively common family name uh, in kyushu and i is it right that she didn't actually know that she was related to the guild until just a few years ago I think it was a rather recent discovery for her and she's really taken it full on. And she is one of the leading 
historians um, uh, related to the guild's activities that that is alive today. And she's very young, so fortunately, this is not a resource that's going to to disappear anytime soon. Hopefully, she continues to write and she can continues to tell people these stories and uh, so that this history won't be lost. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Great stuff. Um, Sipping on anything? It's probably a little obvious. Um, (laughs) You may be, are you, are you drinking the same thing I'm drinking? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, So is, is the most famous, I would argue, brand made by, uh, and it, it's a, I think I've, I've had it on show Tuesday before. I think I've mentioned it or, or held up the bottle. It's the fat butted bottle. Like it is a seriously robust bottle shape. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's almost like if, if you were to compare it side by side with the typical 1.8 liter bottles, you would almost feel like the Iton bottle is kind of like a, it's a bowling ball with a, a spout at the top. <laughs> it's a really <laughs> fat bottle, which is pretty cool. Instantly recognizable. Yep. And unfortunately, you can't buy it at the distillery. That's right. You can't. It's actually lottery only. And you have to mail in a postcard every month. And if your postcard gets drawn, you're allowed to buy two Ishobin. And nice. you can apply for everyone in your household that's of legal drinking age. And all of us who are on this trip applied, and none of us. One. <laughs> None of us got it. I think there were five or six of us, maybe seven of us. Five? That's right. Yeah, I think we put in seven postcards and we got zero. So uh. we, we struck out. Fortunately, you and I were able to track some down. But yeah, and one thing that's interesting about Iton is they actually add more uh, rice koji to the sec- second fermentation, to the, to the main fermentation, which I hadn't heard of before. Yeah, it, I, as far as I can tell, it's... At least it's not talked about if that's a common strategy or if, you know, maybe was that a Kurose thing, a Kurose right. Toji thing back in the day. But I can see the logic behind it. And uh, it's, although most distilleries will claim that it's not necessary, I think it's a very interesting wrinkle to the production process for Iton and another reason to um, dwell, on, dwell on it and keep smelling it and seeing if you can tell the difference. But uh, yeah, really iconic brand from the southwestern western corner of Kagoshima out there in Kasasa, just right off the that coast um, up in the hills. And and I think that uh, unfortunately, if you come to Japan and you try to find this brand, you're probably not going to find it. Unfortunately, but you'll you'll see it online a lot. It it tends to when people find it and drink it, they post it on Instagram. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I I do see it in Izakaya. Occasionally around Fukuoka. All right. So well, I think yeah, you're, you're closer to the source. That's right. I, I do think you're more likely to find it uh, at an izakaya with a nice shochu selection than you are, you know, uh, you know, acquiring a, a full bottle for yourself, basically. Yeah. So if you can track it down, have a sip. It's it's good stuff. It, I I really enjoyed this. I it's not often I think for you and I that we actually learn something legitimately completely new. Uh, as we're exploring uh, shochu and awamori in particular, because we've just spent so much time learning about these drinks over the years. Mm-hmm. And to finally have this, it was kind of a mystery for us. I think we we both, we knew that there were these guilds, but we didn't really know much about them. And we sort of avoided talking about them because we didn't have the knowledge. 
Uh, and we've been able to, to change that to some degree, learn a little bit about the Kurosei Toji Guild. Yeah. Um, I dare say that we probably know more about it than most of the people making shochu these days, just because when you ask them about it, they don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's fair. <laughs> that reminds me, when I was talking to one of the younger distillery workers at one of the large distillers that's quite automated, uh, you know, and I, I had a couple of questions for him and he basically showed me which buttons to press on the machine to do which job. And I was like, right. that's not exactly, my question wasn't really about how the machine operates. I wanted to understand the process that it was doing. So you, you may be right about that, that unless, unless you've spent time working in a, a handmade distillery, you might not really know much about uh, this side of Shochu's history. Yeah, well, so good news is anyone listening to this today now has a better understanding as well. So yeah, cheers welcome, to that. Welcome deeper to the rabbit hole or the, to a new depth of the rabbit hole. There's a whole lot more to go. So, um, thank you all very much for listening. And if you haven't already, then please consider rating and reviewing the Japan distilled podcast, wherever you enjoy listening to these things. It really helps others to find the show and we can't stress that enough. And of course, please feel free to reach out to us, both of us on Twitter or Instagram. You can find me at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter and at Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. How about you, Stephen? Yeah, for me, you can reach out to me at Japan Distilled on both Twitter and Instagram. And please check out our website, japandistilled.com, for the show notes on this and every episode. I'll be sure to put in some photographs of, of our visit. And uh, please tune in to our Japan Distilled Show Tuesday every Tuesday evening, 9 p.m. Eastern in the U.S. and 10 a.m. Wednesday in Japan. And of course, don't forget to sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Japan Distilled. And if you want to know more about that, then go back and listen to the beginning of episode number 38. Until next time, everybody, thank you very much from both of us here in Japan to all of you out there around the world. A very hearty and heartfelt kanpai. Kanpai? We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled podcast. This has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. Time's up,